I'm Michaela Pauchner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by New Leaf Symbiotics. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 Risk-Free Satisfaction Promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Kelly Van Beek spent two years traversing the rows of 12 no-till soybean fields in east-central Illinois, flushing out and counting grassland birds. She wanted to analyze how many nests she found in no-till fields compared to conventionally tilled fields in the same area. Van Beek, who's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Migratory Bird Program, discovered no-till provides big benefits for birds, giving them a 10% greater chance of nest success compared to tilled fields. Crop residue, cover crops, and more plant material in general provide better cover and nesting conditions for grassland birds. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter gets into the weeds with Van Beek about which no-till fields provide the best habitats for songbirds, what cover crops are most hospitable to birds, and finding a balance between productivity and conservation on farmland. So let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about your background. So did you grow up on a farm? I, I tend to say I grew up on a farm, and what I mean by that was my grandparents on my dad's side had an active dairy farm until, you know, my grandparents were in their late 80s, early 90s, and I spent a ton of time there with my dad growing up. We were there almost every weekend, depending on <laughs> depending on what, what we needed to get done, hay yeah. season especially. So where was this located? That was in West Bend, Wisconsin. Oh, you're close to us in Brookfield, right? Then. Mm-hmm. Yep. Probably a true badger, too, right? <laughs> Born and raised, yeah. Where'd you go to school for undergrad? My undergrad, I went to UW-Stevens Point. Okay. And then what'd you do with the graduate school? My master's degree is from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I have a master's in natural resources and environmental sciences. Tell me about the job you have now. What are you doing now? Sure. So I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service now. We work in the Migratory Bird Program. Um, There's a particular program in the Fish and Wildlife Service that's responsible for migratory birds. And frequently people think about the game species that Fish and Wildlife Service is involved with the management of, like waterfowl. But we have federal trust responsibility for any birds listed under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So I mostly do uh, non-game grassland bird work now in the Midwest, whether that's capacity building or assisting with research and monitoring projects, trying to stay on top of 
any new developments and creative ways we can further conservation of non-game grass and songbirds in the agricultural region of the Midwest is what I think about daily. Well, we've been doing No-Till Farmer, uh, the newsletter and the magazine for 50 years, and we've done just a few stories on bird populations, quail and pheasants, but uh, we haven't done many over the years. So I was intrigued when I saw that you had done your master's degree on this. So tell me how you got interested with birds and no-till. I think it came about from that intersection of my upbringing with my interest in wildlife. Like I said, I spent a lot of time on that farm growing up uh, with my dad. We deer hunted quite a bit on that farm growing up, and that's how I got interested in wildlife. And I really got interested when I was in college and pursuing a master's program and how we could further conservation of wildlife, in particular birds, um, the farming systems that I am familiar with and grew up in. Uh, I happened to meet Mike Ward at the University of Illinois, who had done some work on birds and agricultural systems, and he was also interested in seeing what kind of benefits no-till might provide uh, to breeding birds in Illinois. We managed to pull together a master's project, and I somehow pulled it off, and it's gotten an interesting thing amount of attention since then. Um, there's not a whole lot of people that... <laughs> want to do research on birds and row crop systems in the Midwest, but uh, we gave it our best shot for sure. So tell me how you ended up out in no-till soybean field counting birds, and how did you do this? We anticipated that there would be more birds nesting in no-till than there would be in our conventionally chilled or even conservation uh, fields, and in particular in the soybeans, just because the height and structure of those fields seemed reasonable for birds to be nesting in, and uh, I was doing the research in Central Illinois in the classic Corn Belt, and, you know, most of those farmers are concerned with getting their corn in first, right? So we have a little bit more time on the beans um, in the spring, and so those fields actually look pretty weedy going into May before they put their bean crop in, which is great for the birds. They wouldn't even necessarily uh, get a first herbicide spring in until right before they plant, right? So there were plenty of weeds out there in those no-till fields, plus most of the time it was being no-till drilled into corn, and... So there's plenty of structure out there that those birds seem to like. And certainly we found more nests and the uh, more diversity of birds in those no-till fields as a result. The methods we used to collect the data were pretty classic bird data collection methods. Um, when we were looking for the nests, I simply had a small team that walked back and forth across 80 acres <laughs> fields of beans trying to flush pretty small birds off a nest. You know, as small as something like a Vesper Sparrow. So if you know what a house sparrow is in your yard, they're smaller than that even. And so finding a needle in a haystack kind of stuff. But we found probably more nests in soybeans than anybody's ever found before, at least since the 80s and 90s. So that was how we found the nests. And then I would monitor them periodically until they either failed, which they frequently did, or they fledged their young. And then when I did um, some of the abundance type surveys, I was walking transects in those fields, counting the birds that were there and using some of our typical methods, taking some measurements that we would need in order to do the analysis later. We did a little bit of vegetation work as well to see what kind of vegetation existed around the nests that we did find. So these were migratory birds, so they would have been farther south for the winter. But when they came to Illinois, this was not a stop on going north. This is where they expected to spend the summer. It depends. We did have one resident bird that would be ring-neck pheasant and found one nest of ring-neck pheasant there and some other use of by pheasants in agricultural fields. Certainly, um, I wasn't in a super great spot for pheasants when I was doing that research, but it really depends on the species. And Illinois is an interesting place because um, compared to Wisconsin, the winters are definitely warmer down there. And sure. so some of those birds might not actually go that far uh, during the wintertime. And as we continue to have warmer winters, 
if they can find food resources close to housing um, in urban areas, maybe they didn't move that much at all. Um, the number one nesting species actually in no-till soybeans on the ground was American robins. <laughs> but for the most part, yes, uh, we're, the traditional thought of the birds go south during the winter, um, somewhere to the south, whether that's in the U.S., Central America, or South America. We even have some species that are going into South America um, and then are coming back to breed either in Illinois or potentially further north. Um, we try to start the data collection until we really have um, most of the resident species for the breeding season in place um, so that we are really focusing on those rather than the ones that are going to continue further north for their breeding season. So I looked at your paper and uh, you did this over two years. You had about a dozen no-till fields and 12 tilled fields and the soybeans were pretty much planted between May 5th and mid-June. So, mm-hmm. And you spotted them and then you made nest searches weekly in the no-till fields and bi-weekly in the tilled fields for three months. Why did no-till come out on top? We found overall more nests in no-till fields, and then as we do some adjustments based on how frequently we searched and the size of those fields, the density of the nests we found per acre in a field was greater in no-till fields than in the tilled fields. Um, And the same story could be told for the abundance of the birds that we found. Um, So we do some calculations to figure out abundance of birds. There was also a metric that we talked about called um, avian conservation score. Um, And so we were talking about, okay, of the species that we observed in the soybean fields, did no-tiller till have more species that um, have a conservation score that indicates we have a lot of concern about them, essentially. So in the no-till fields, we found more of those species that we have conservation concern for. And that stems from the fact that uh, more grassland obligate species were attempting to use those soybean fields. So things like upland sandpipers um, we found in no-till fields, dick thistles, uh, eastern meadowlarks, grasshopper sparrows, those kinds of things that are really in steep decline uh, that we're very concerned about in the bird world. Um, we were more likely to find and did find some in those no-till fields. Uh, more different species of birds were, were nesting in the no-till. Um, so overall, we certainly didn't have what I would call a robust bird community in the no-till fields versus the till fields, but more of the things that we're concerned about and that we're hoping to see were in those no-till beans. And that really stems back to the fact that there's that weediness early on in the season and those weeds didn't even get terminated until about May. And, and when you're in central Illinois, birds are starting to breed potentially at the end of March certainly in April. So um, they have nearly enough time to do one full round of raising young uh, before a farmer's in that field, either doing an herbicide operation or, or planting. Really what they need, they need a minimum amount of time in order to get a successful nest off the ground. So not only the nests were more, but how about the survival rates? The survival of nest of songbirds overall is pretty dang low, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but we did see greater survival in the no-till fields. Um, And that could be related to a variety of things. Predation, regardless, caused the most uh, failure of nests and followed by farming operations. I mean, generally those um, nests can't make it through anytime you pull a tractor through that field. Just that disturbance um, can make the birds abandon the nest or the vegetation uh, can fold over and they stop incubating on that nest. Something like a tilled field where we have far less cover, it is easier for a predator to you know, find a nest. Um, we did have a few cameras out uh, monitoring nests. Um, we found predators like even coyotes, but also, you know, the gophers, 13 long ground squirrels. We're also getting in on nests. Nests are more exposed in, in tilled fields. There's just not that cover um, that potentially could be helping 
conceal that nest. But overall, there's just not that many nests to begin with <laughs> in those till fields. So survival was somewhat better in no-till fields. Overall, like I said, songbirds are not that successful at raising young, especially in these highly disturbed environments. The, the nest survival that we saw in the no-till fields was fairly similar to what you could expect in a roadside ditch or alongside um, a stream or something like that, based on some other information we have from similar places in Illinois. When you talk about these no-till soybean fields, were they no-tilled in the year you were um, looking at or the previous year? Right. Some of them, I'm guessing, were uh, consistently no-tilled. But I can't say no for sure that the full range of tillage activity on all those fields, there was no-till beans in the year that we were looking for the nuts. Okay. And then so, all in all cases, it was it was corn the year prior on the till fields and the no-till fields. Okay. So looking at corn, would your results be the same in no-till corn or not? That's a good question. I mean, we didn't look through corn. I guess one of the reasons why we didn't look through corn is... Um, because we knew they get in those fields so early sure. in central Illinois um, to get their corn crop in when they have those, you know, longer day varieties. And so mm-hmm. even in their no-till fields, they, they can get in pretty early. The structure of a corn plant looks pretty different than a soybean. And just that, that different in the herbaceous cover seems to attract a little bit different birds. And it was really that corn crop residue from the previous year that um, they were, they seem to really be attracted to, in addition to some of the weeds that were allowed to be present and living um, yeah. into May. So we didn't look through corn. Some of the previous research hadn't been done since the late 80s, early 90s, and they did look through some no-till corn back then um, and found uh, lower numbers of uh, of those breeding birds. And for a variety of reasons, it seems like they really like those bean fields, depending on what part of the country you're in. If you have something like a no-till wheat crop, lots of, lots of vegetation residue, and then that more grassy structure, um, more dense living vegetation, the birds can't like that as well. Yeah, well, no-till wheat would be ideal for this because you would plant it in the fall, and uh, you would you would have cover all the way through July or August. Mm-hmm. Depends on the species. The tricky part about wheat too um, is that you potentially would be attracting some of those grassland birds, and um, a lot of those grassland birds they'll need some bare ground, and in order to be willing to nest in that wheat just gets so thick, right? It might not reach the height that those birds want by the time they want to put a nest in there. Got to gain some of that height through the summer. And by that point, the birds, they've hit their peak of, of nest initiation. And depending on where you're at in the country, and the wheat might, is not necessarily at the height that some of those birds want. Plus, it's pretty dense. Um, and so some birds will tolerate that, like red-winged blackbirds, um, but some other birds won't. We'll come back to the conversation with Kelly Van Beek in just a moment. Before we do so, thanks to New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting our No-Till Farmer, Influencers, and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. It's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. 
Some readers and listeners recently asked what's going on with no-till in South America. Well, one of the things that's come up is, well, it took us 30 years to increase our no-till by a certain amount. Brazil did the same thing in five years. And they're expecting to have 22 million acres more of grains, oil seeds, and cotton by 2028 than they do today. Only about 7.5% of their 868 million acres in rural areas is being used for crop production, so they got real potential for growth. So why is South America caught on to no-till faster than we have? Well, there are a handful of reasons. No-till provides viable erosion control where climate conditions favor high erosion and degradation of soil. They've had widespread use of cover crops, uh, aid weed suppression for a number of years. Interestingly enough, no-till was the only conservation tillage method recommended to South American growers by all parties over the last 20 or 30 years. So we got to watch them. They're going to get ahead of us, and they're big on the export markets. Now, let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Kelly Van Beek as they discuss the potential benefits cover crops could have for grassland bird populations and how you can make your fields more bird-friendly. Let's say somebody was planting green in the no-till soybeans. So they would, if they planted soybeans on May 15th, they would still be no-tilling into a living cover crop. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then maybe they roll it down and kill it that way a week later, or maybe they use herbicides. So would uh, this encourage more birds or not? Potentially, yes. The tricky part is going to be, again, um, any of that mechanical activity at the wrong time relative to birds. It makes it really tough for those birds then to actually go through a full cycle and have a successful nest. And farmers are in there doing that mechanical activity about at the peak of when those right. birds are getting trying to get those fledglings out of the nest. What ends up or potentially is happening is we're attracting birds into these areas and they're kind of dangerous for them, right, in that they, they're going to get hit by mechanical activity or um, maybe sprayed by herbicide, things like that. But, you know, they're attracted to that cover crops that are germinating already in the spring because they were put out um, the previous fall. Mike has grad students that has done some work on that. In particular, you know, those cereal grains that are in there in the springtime, that first flush of um, real vegetation is very attractive to migratory birds. And so it could be useful from that standpoint. One of the things that we suggested from that publication was maybe what we could incentivize in some way of um, recognizing that there's going to be some yield loss would be that we wait a certain amount of time before we allow that first mechanical disturbance to happen in those soybean fields, potentially compensating a producer based on how much yield loss we can expect if they wait five more days. And, and from our results, that's all it really would have taken up to another week is what those birds really needed. And the nests of the species that we are most concerned about were occurring pretty early in the season. And if we could have just waited about another week um, to get in there with farm machinery, uh, they probably could have got those fledgings out. What happens to those fledglings once they leave the nest is another thing. You know, they very well might still be sitting in that soybean field and not appreciate uh, getting their vegetation crimped over, (laughs) you know, like a rye cover crop or something that may make them more exposed to predators. They can't fly very well either when they're young. So anytime we add disturbance, it's another hurdle for them. But I've generally been of the philosophy that the more growing cover we can put out on the landscape in the springtime, um, even if we know it's going to get disturbed um, and there's going to be some nest loss or, you know, potential impacts to those fledgling birds. If we're doing that across millions of acres of the Midwest that we at least we're giving those birds a chance that they wouldn't have had before when we didn't have those covers out there in the early spring. 
I saw something Michael Ward had posted about uh, birds seem to like cereal rye as a cover crop much better yeah. than something like chrisman, clover, or turnips. What do you think? I'm guessing it's just related to structure that cereal rye has a structure similar to what you'd find in a, a native curry to some extent. And potentially it's related to insect community that is in something like cereal rye versus those other crops in the springtime. Particularly during migration, those birds are looking for food as much as they can. And so they're going to stop where they can get pretty good um, uh, insect resources or maybe even, you know, some grain resources. Uh, some species would would potentially be interested in in the springtime, but I'm guessing it's also structure related. It's more similar to a natural habitat than some of those other cover crops are. We got a number of no-tillers who like to hunt quail and pheasants and prefer no-till fields. We got no-tillers in the Dakotas who are setting up hunting camps and charging people to come in and they find mm -hmm. there's more quail and pheasants in no-till fields. Yep, the same same across the board, I'd say, for game species to the non-game. Having that cover, whether it's crop residue or a cover crop, is important for birds, um, regardless of species. And again, as we get some of the species that are more selective, like those non-game grassland songbirds, they might be a little bit more picky about what that cover looks like because they need particular structure in their habitat. But in a place like Wisconsin, uh, where we've got a lot of other issues that pheasants are facing, they probably are benefiting from farmers using no-till. Again, it comes down to how many times are those fields getting disturbed by a mechanical operation or an herbicide operation and how much residual cover and growing cover is there. So not, yeah, I'm not surprised <laughs> that they see more pheasants out, out on the prairies and places where we have no-till. I, I always tell people too, if you think about the, you know, like the place where my dad grew up in West Bend um, in the 60s and 70s, the modern day no-till farming to some extent looks a lot like that, right? Everything was a little bit messier. You had a little bit more edge everywhere. Yeah. They had lots of different wildlife that was used in those fields. So it's kind of interesting how that's come back around, right? This is just us kind of mimicking some of that quote messy <laughs> agriculture <laughs> that we used to have quite a bit of. Yeah. Well, it's the same with me. I grew up on a dairy farm in Michigan, about 40 miles north of Detroit. And I remember my dad planting cover crops and my grandfather, late 40s and 50s. And then we got away from cover crops. We went to use it in fertilizer all the time. And now we're getting back into cover crops, but uh, had a lot of benefits then. I, we used to see crimson clover in the fall. And uh, the government's making a push now to get more acres into CRP. This must be ideal for birds, right? A huge tool in our toolbox for sure in states like ours and in corn country. Um, we have so little grass left and sure. we need that grass in order to sustain any of these obligate grass and songbirds that have been really tanking for quite a while now. Um, mm -hmm. So that it is important um, from a wildlife perspective and not just even for birds. There's, there's plenty of other wildlife benefits if you're interested in White-tailed deer, there's plenty of there's plenty of benefits of having CRP on your property. So when we're talking about large geographic scale and impact, um, CRP is our biggest tool on private lands to try to get some of that perennial grassland native cover back. Mm -hmm. Well, with high commodity prices right now, it's probably a tough sell for a number of people. Certainly, like yeah. Corn, wheat, and soybean prices. Yep. Um, the constant struggle with that program, yeah, is the market fluctuations and um, how those rental rates can compete when the row crop prices increase. Yeah. Well, one thing you probably don't want to hear, but it's happening, is we've got a lot of people in Illinois, Iowa, Indiana who 
started no-towing mm-hmm. soybeans ahead of corn and seeing the benefits of getting soybeans in in mid-April or so. You're talking about planting later, and now a lot yeah. of people are talking about planting no-towing beans earlier. Yeah. There's got to be a balance, right? It's not like I, I would ever expect row crop agriculture to go away. If the world needs to eat, and um, you know we have products to make and people that need to make a living. And so there's the balance between how can we efficiently produce the crops that we need on lands where that makes sense um, and where we can do it in a, with conservation in mind. And then where are there are places where we can potentially sacrifice some production. It's very difficult for us to maximize production while also producing wildlife. Those things are always going to compete to some extent. Um, and hopefully there will be places where we say, you know, we can back off a little bit on the gas pedal of production and think a little bit more about the wildlife benefit because that can provide other societal benefits like you were mentioning in the prairies. If we can back off a little bit on production, um, but you're going to get lease payment from somebody who wants to hunt, you know, sure. where, where can we make those kinds of things work? It's always what I'm a proponent of. Like I said, if I come from a farming family. I fully recognize agriculture is going to exist on the landscape, but for non-green grassland birds, it has to. Once we put some of those, um, crop fields in the houses, well, then we're definitely not going to have grass and birds. And so having them as working lands is critical. Would we love to see a little bit more perennial grass cover that is a working land? Um, like, so whether that's being grazed or taken as some other kind of commodity crop that doesn't currently exist, sure, that would be a huge game changer, I think, for wildlife too. But certainly we're going to have corn and beans and, and that's okay. Right. It's needed. So no tillers that had... Uh sod waterways or stream strips would this attract birds into that area if they moved out of the soybean fields definitely the more little strips of grass you have like that in the landscape um, in general the more birds are kind of just attracted to that landscape to begin with we generally from a wildlife perspective say the bird benefits of those really thin strips of cover can be debatable it's a pretty fragmented spot for a bird to try to nest in and things like the raccoons and like I said, 13 line ground squirrels and lots of predators are also going to be in those pretty fragmented strips. Some of the non-game grass and songbirds are area sensitive, meaning that they, they won't even attempt to nest in a really small patch of grass. They want bigger space before they go into those spots to try to breed for the season. So, but certainly the water quality benefits are there and the more of those little strips in a landscape still makes the overall grassland perennial cover in that landscape increase, especially if we have bigger CRP blocks nearby and we can add that little bit of grass cover that could be used as pathways to get birds or other critters from one CRP field to the next. Um, that's all still important. So it just depends on what the landscape looks like and what other covers exist there. But And I'm a bird person. I, I think about birds a lot, but I also think about what other environmental benefits we can provide. Anytime we can add that perennial cover and then hopefully leave it um, undisturbed. You know, a lot of people like to mow their grass waterways, right? Sure. For their weed control. And so if we do that at the wrong times and there's birds in there during the breeding season, that's you know, obviously not providing the benefit that we would hope for birds. Um, those kind of operations, I understand as a land manager, as that manages native covers, we got to do some of those things sometimes. And so there will be um, winners and losers on the wildlife front. But there's certainly there's certainly a lot of benefits from having increased that increased grassland perennial cover in our agricultural areas. 
We've also got no-tillers that are getting interested in putting in pollinator strips, so that might be a mm -hmm. place for birds to go too, right? Yep. There's a group in um, out of Iowa State that has been looking at that for a long time, the Prairie Strips Program, and I can't say that I've kept up on any of their more recent results, but um, in a landscape like Iowa, a really open landscape um, where we do have some of those nicer pockets of CRP left, um, and where they integrate those pollinator strips into their row crop habitats, they do see a good bird response. So um, if we can do those kinds of things that on really large scales, um, certainly we'd see some, some wildlife benefits. I've known for some time we haven't done enough about uh, birds and, and no-till, and it's got real benefits, and uh, I appreciate you doing this. Um, I appreciate the invite. It's near and dear topic to my heart, being somebody that grew up in a farming family and what we can do to help help farmers farm and make a living and also produce wildlife is something I always enjoy talking about, so thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. A few months ago, a reader asked me how he could do a better job of getting his no-till colders in the ground. And while a lot of people aren't using colders on their no-till planters anymore, there are certainly a number of people still doing it. One of the main ways to get colders into the ground is you got to put more weight into them, and it's 500 pounds per row is a rough guideline. And add-on weights, regardless of what you do, or adjustable down pressure can help but you've got to experiment with your own soil types and residue conditions to find the perfect amount of weight to get the colders in the ground. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Kelly Van Beek for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at mpaukner at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Pogner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.